You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Well, I don't know if you have done much non-Western country traveling, but if you have traveled outside the U.S. Uh, to places that aren't sort of in the, the, the Western world, you know it can be a bit uh, jarring. It's a thing. It's, it's, not, it's not like here. I know for us, we've traveled a lot internationally and specifically because we've done two uh, adoptions in India. We have been to India a couple times over the past few years. And every time we go to India, uh, it is, uh, it's a bit disorienting, trying to sort of organize what I'm seeing, especially the first time I went, trying to figure out how I'm to navigate in this country that I don't really understand sort of the mores and the ways of operation. Uh, it was just a little confusing. For, for instance, um, uh, traffic signs or uh, stoplights or uh, really any road marker of any kind, uh, suggestions. Uh, those are suggestions. Uh, just um, you do it or not, whatever you guys have fun out there. Uh, honking, mandatory. Uh, hitting another vehicle with your vehicle as a honking alternative, encouraged, uh, it happened to me three months ago. So it, it's, it is a thing there, just very, you will never go to a theme park quite as enjoyable as being on a highway in India. It is a, it's a special, special place, people. The other thing that I couldn't quite kind of get my head around was my, my interactions with people, like employees and waiters and stuff, I just... I just felt like I was getting the rudest version of hu human interaction at that point. I don't know why. I, I would sit and I would ask them questions. We'd be at a restaurant and I'd ask something like, hey, do you have buttered chicken? And they would go like this. I'm like, what? Do you not know if you have buttered chicken? Is there someone in the back I could add? Do I smell? Why, why can't you just give me an answer? All, all the yes or no questions I was asking people, I'd always just kind of get this response from them. Like, why does everybody hate me here? I don't understand. What's it? I was confused. I was disoriented until I remembered something someone had told me uh, before I got on the trip, and it was this. When Americans say yes, we go, and when Indians say yes, they go, and this to me, reads a little bit more like, Jimmy, you're a big dumb idiot, than it does yes. Uh, so I, I couldn't make sense of it. And so I had, to, I had to learn the culture of this new place so that I could exist inside of it better. Does that make sense? And in many ways, that's exactly what the book of Colossians is doing right now. Paul spent the first half of his letter, and we've seen this, uh, telling us about the new place we're in. Do you remember in chapter one, he says this, he, he Jesus, or God, has delivered uh, us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. We're, so we're in a new place now. If you're in Christ, you're in a, a new place. You once were there and now you're here. This new kingdom that you're in uh, is uh, a kingdom with a king and this king's name is Jesus. And we find out about him in chapter one that he's the king over all things, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus, he is the king of everything. He runs this place and it's all his. So a new kingdom with a new king and not just that, but we ourselves are actually new. We found out last week in chapter three, it says that you have put on the new self. You remember this? A new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So you are a new people with a new king and a new kingdom and so you need to learn this place you're in because we do things differently around here. That's what Paul's saying. 
That's what the back half of, the, of this letter is for, helping us sort of navigate how we live in light of these new realities, a new kingdom with a new king and a new self. How do we navigate it? And he tells us, we found out last week, that one, one of the things that we're doing is we're, because we're new, we're putting off the old practices and attitudes. So n- don't slander, don't murder, don't lie, don't lust. We're taking those things off and we're putting on things like a heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. We're new, and so we act new. Being in this new kingdom should change how you live. And today, we're gonna look at how being members of this new kingdom should affect our work life. We're actually gonna do it a little bit out of order. Next week, we're gonna tackle family. This week, we're gonna tackle work. So I I wanna get into this uh, with you. How does living in this new kingdom, how should it affect our work life, the way we work. Now, before we do any more work here, I just want to run headlong at the elephant that's inevitably going to be in the room because I don't know if you noticed or not, but this passage didn't say, here's how you navigate your work life. And it didn't say employers and employees. It says things like slaves and bondservants and masters. It's a text about slavery. And that wouldn't be so bad, except that the guy who wrote the passage doesn't condemn it in the passage. And so now we have a problem because, because there are many of us in this room who, who will not be able to get over the fact that there, there are sentences in our text like slaves obey in everything, your earthly masters. How do you handle that? I'm, I'm colliding with this. I can't make sense of anything else until I deal with this. And for many of you, you won't, you won't be able to hear another word of what I'm saying up here because all you can see is an endorsement of what seems like bigotry and racism. And how could the Bible endorse slavery? And I just wanna say that's a valid question to ask. We should have to sort out how, how these things are in this text and what it means for us. So I want to do a little bit of legwork here just as a, a parenthesis before we get into our passage. How, how is it that it reads like this? What's really going on? Let me say two quick things about it. Uh, first is this. Don't assume the slavery of Paul's day is the slavery you're thinking of. That'd be the first thing I would say. So 19th, 18th and 19th century, American transatlantic chattel slavery, the thing that we typically think of, is not the exact same institution as first century Roman slavery. There is some overlap, but it's not the exact same thing. So in the American model, for instance, uh, it is a race-based, lifelong, freedomless institution that existed because of man-stealing. Those are sort of the the elements that make up American transatlantic slave trade. In the Roman model, it it wasn't like that. For instance, uh, one, uh, it was not race-based. So it was uh, the slaves in the the community of Rome were were made up of all sorts of different ethnic groups. So it wasn't specific to one race. Two, there were were many ways to become a slave in the Roman model. So some of the ways might be you were a prisoner of war and then you were conscripted into slavery. That, that is possible, but, but you could also conscript yourself into slavery as a way to pay off debt. It was a mechanism to pay off debt for many people. In the first century, they didn't have bankruptcy. You couldn't declare bankruptcy like Michael Scott. You couldn't do that. You, you, you actually had to work it off. And so that is one of the mechanisms that the society gave you to do that. It felt more, a, a little bit more like akin to indentured servitude. 
Okay, does that make sense? Uh, number three, the average length of time in the Roman model that uh, a slave spent as a slave, you know how long it was? 10 years. It was the average length of time. So it's very different than the model that we're familiar with, where you are a slave lifelong, and then your kids, and your kids, kids, kids. It wasn't that. The manumission of most slaves in the Roman model came at, at about 10 years. So uh, that's significant to, to bear in mind. Fourthly, uh, upward mobility within the slave community was entirely possible. In some unusual ways, you could actually become a doctor or a lawyer while being a slave in first century Rome. You could actually own your own slaves as a slave. So much of what was called slavery really did operate a lot more like indentured servitude. So in those ways, there are some significant distinctions between the two models, the two institutions. So I want to say that, but, but I also want to be careful of this. A lot of preachers like to get up here and we like to totally whitewash the whole thing and go, oh, that wasn't slavery. It was just folks working for folks. I want to be clear. It's slavery, okay? It, it is chattel. It is a human owning a human. It, it's what we did here and it's what was happening back then. So it is slavery. And I also want to be clear, it wasn't all roses and sunflowers. There, there was there's significant uh, scholarly evidence that there was a lot of brutality in this society regarding slaves. So not every expression of slavery uh, was brutal, but there certainly was brutality. So I just, it's good for us to bear in mind, it was not what we typically think of, but it certainly has aspects of what we typically think of as chattel slavery. Does that make sense? The reason I'm saying all this is I I want us to be fair to the context and not project back onto it our modern understanding. That's bad scholarship. That's bad Bible study. We want to be fair to the text as we approach it. Is that fair? Okay. Second thing. Don't assume that because Paul doesn't condemn slavery outright that somehow this is an endorsement of it. I want to be really clear about this. The Bible hates slavery in the way that we're understanding it. The Bible hates it. The, the Bible is incredibly clear that things like man-stealing, for instance, is illegal. Have you guys ever read Exodus 21, 16? You know what it says? It says this, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So the death penalty was applied to man stealing, owning, selling, or owning a man who was stolen. In one verse, the entire institution of American chattel slavery is completely done away with, completely condemned. Do you see that? Scripture condemns what happened on this continent. Scripture condemns slavery. Man stealing is not part of the equation. Second thing that's important to uh, point out, God loves diversity. So this is a positive argument now, but if you spend any time in the scripture, you're gonna see this shine through with vivid colors. God invented diversity. When you go to Revelation, uh, and you're looking at Revelation chapter five or Revelation uh, seven, nine, you are seeing representatives from every tribe, tongue, and nation, every ethnos, every ethnic group, every skin color, every person represented at the throne of Jesus, worshiping him forever. It's his idea. He invented diversity. He loves diversity. He loves skin color. He loves culture. He, he invented it. He's not colorblind. All of those things are true about God. He loves diversity. So again, let's not read into the Bible something that the Bible isn't saying about itself. That's just not true. Last thing, Paul himself 
wanted slaves to be free. You don't see it come across in this passage, but you certainly see it in other passages of Paul. Consider this, 1 Corinthians 7.21, Paul actually encourages, he's writing to slaves, and he encourages them to seek their freedom if, it, if it's ever possible. So when the opportunity prevents, presents itself, he says, avail yourself of that opportunity if ever you can. So the posture of even the Apostle Paul, the guy who wrote these words, was you should get out from under this if you can, okay? So when, when I put all those pieces together, I don't know about you, but when I put all those together, I, I see a really strong argument that the posture of the Bible is against what we understand to be sort of the chattel forms of slavery. And instead, there's, there's a, a really strong positive argument for freedom and liberation in the economy of God in scripture. Is that fair? <clears throat> I say that because now we have to make sense of what we're about to read. How do we make sense of this? It, it, I can imagine it could be really hard to, to read and hear this and process this and, and not be hit super sideways with what's being said in this text. That's why we said what we just did. But what is Paul doing in light of all of that information? He, here's what I wanna argue that Paul's doing in the book of Colossians. He is helping, in this passage, Paul is helping Christians operate in a world broken by sin. That's what he's doing. How do we navigate in a world that is broken by sin if we are not part of this world anymore? Of course, this isn't how it should be, he's saying. Yes, this is, this is a broken system, but here we are, guys. Did you know that 80 to 90% of the Roman population was made up of slaves? I mean, it is everywhere. There is no escaping this thing. So, so how do we be of a different kingdom but be this, in this kingdom when this is so part of the fabric of how we live inside this kingdom? That's what Paul's doing. How do we operate in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation? He's saying we're in a new kingdom now, so how do you work? How do you do your job in a way that says I'm in that kingdom, not this one? If, if what I just said is true, that means that this text isn't just something to be applied to like slaves or something that bond servants have to think about. This means this text is for you and me. It's for us. How do we work as new kingdom people in the midst of a broken culture? Or let me say it a different way. Does the way you do your job or the way you study or the way you manage your home or the way you volunteer, does it reflect that you're not from around here? Does it reflect that? So three things Paul shows us to, to get us into that headspace. With this new kingdom, there is th three things we see. There is a higher call in our work, a deeper motive for our work, and a freer outcome because of our work. A higher call, a deeper motive, and a freer outcome. So let's look at it together. Let's start with a higher call. Uh, if you got your Bible, get it out. We're gonna be in Colossians chapter three, uh, starting in verse 22. You can read it with me. Uh, it says this, verse 22. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now, I'm, not, I'm just gonna tell you up front, I'm not gonna do any fancy footwork with you here. All we're gonna do is we're just gonna observe what the text says Word by word, okay? Bond servants. That is, given what we just talked about, that is us, workers, laborers, you, those who serve, those who work. Bond servants, obey. Translation, do your job. Do your job. Isn't it nice when the Bible's just clear? It's just, just do your job. Do you wanna know 
what it means to be a, like to live as a real Christian, like to be, be like really Christian. You know what it means? Work hard. Do your job. Do your job. Sometimes we can get so like hyper spiritual about like this thing we call Christianity. Like when we're trying to think how, what happens in here, like makes it into the workplace or in our home life, like we get all weird about it. Like as if like what it means for me to be a Christian in my workplace is I got to put like a Christian fish on all my business cards and hand it out to you with kind of a weird grin on my face. Or like I got to, I got to like start a company, but the, the name of the company has got to be some bizarre acronym that like spells out the gospel when you hear it. Like who do you work for? I work for Schlubly it means uh, uh, set free by the blood of the lamb and atoned by his loving sacrifice and if you trust him you'll be with him forever we do roofs <laughs> right it's weird it's weird. why do we get so weird about that I, I, I appreciate the way that Martin Luther talked about this when he was talking with a cobbler a shoemaker um, about how that cobbler was to be a Christian in his context as a shoemaker. This is a quote by Martin Luther. This is what he says. It says, the Christian shoemaker does his duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes. Who'd have thought? Because, he says, God is interested in good craftsmanship. Isn't that great? You want your Christianity to be expressed in your work then Christian, you work hard, work in everything. So do your job well in whatever you're given to do. I don't know if you saw it, but there's not a caveat here. There's no like, unless it's not in your wiring. I'm an Enneagram five. That's more Enneagram eight work. Uh, so, so I'm sorry. It's just not in my DNA. It's, there's none of that here. Can I shatter someone's dreams real quick? God is not super concerned about whether you're fulfilled at your job. Good night. Uh, he's not. This is tough for us because I, all of us, myself included, have have to one degree or another drank the sort of pop Christian culture Kool-Aid which says, God wants you to reach up there and pull down your dream and put it inside your heart and you just live your best life. Don't you ever be satisfied with anything less than your dream job. Go get, you know how many thousands of books, Christian books, are written with like that title somewhere in there, stars and dreams and pulling down? So many. Can I tell you something? That is unbiblical. The Bible's category is not live your best life at work. The Bible's category is lay down your life at work. That is the category. Bond servants obey in everything. You're going to have work that comes to you in your life that you're not gonna like. It would be a miracle if you ever worked a job where, where you enjoyed 80% of what you did, 70%. You are constantly going to be confronted with work in your life, whether at home, at school, in the office, that you don't enjoy. And that doesn't mean you're in the wrong place, Christian. It just means you're a human. 
That's all it means. The Bible is saying that's normative, that's regular, that's okay. And also, go do your job. Go work. Work at it. There's not a category of things that are beneath you. I mean, please remember the context he's writing in. He's writing to slaves, right? They weren't like, gosh, I, I don't know about this. I took a spiritual gifts test and I'm more of an encourager than like a, a they, they're, they're not saying, they're sl- he's writing to slaves. Some of you in this room, you can't hold down a job because you've been taught to be perpetually discontent by our culture. That's not okay. Here's the thing, I'm not saying it's not wonderful to have a great job that you enjoy. I think you should, that's amazing, that'd be great to have. I'm not even saying it's wrong to keep an eye out for for jobs and work that aligns with your skill set and your passions. When those things come together, that's a wonderful thing. You should pursue that, that's great. I'm just saying, if you don't have a category for sometimes God gives me work to do that I don't like very much, and he might give it to me for a very long time, and that's normal. If you don't have a category for that, you're reading a different Bible because that's not what the text says. Bond servants obey in everything. Then he says this, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. So you obey in everything and not just when your boss is looking. So it was interesting, it was like a, a decade ago, I listened to a This American Life podcast and it was doing a piece on this gift shop that was in the basement of a, uh, of a museum in Washington DC in the 1970s. Gift shop, basement, 1970s. And the, uh, the owners of the gift shop noticed something month over month. They noticed that what was being sold and what was in the cash register was not measuring up. They were losing over 40% of the income they were bringing in through sold products to the tune of year over year, $100,000 a year lost in revenue from sales, and they didn't know what was happening. Remember, this is the 1970s, so this is back in the day when you know there's not like spy cams everywhere. That's not that's not how it was. You're just like, oh, man, I hope you don't steal from me. So they they were trying to figure out and, and investigate who is the culprit, who is the person who's stealing from us. And they had a whole gamut of, of different volunteers who worked for them. Uh, everybody from like uh, former um, patrons to uh, war veterans to uh, students, all these folks working there. And so they, they went on a mission to find out who was stealing from them. Do you know what they discovered? You know, you know who it was of them who was stealing from them? Everyone. They discovered that every single person who worked for the gift shop was taking money from the gift shop when the boss wasn't there. And it built up to over $100,000 of lost income a year because we are so inclined to do great when he or she's in front of us, but as soon as they're gone, what does our heart do? Goes, I'm gonna live for me again. I'm my own master. They were living and working for eye service as people pleasers and not from sincerity of heart. God doesn't just want your hands. He wants your heart to be in it. He wants you to be a man or woman of integrity 
in the lanes that you're working in, whether it's at home or in an office or school. You need to have integrity. Let me ask you a question. Maybe you're not pilfering money from the drawer at your work, but when the person who's in charge of you isn't there, what are you like? What do you like? Would she be proud of the work that you're doing? Or are you cutting corners when they're gone and uh, phoning it in and not going the extra mile until they show up on the scene? God doesn't just care about your hands. We say this all the time here at Stonegate. He cares about what your heart is up to. That's why Paul commands, don't just work well here, you work well here with sincerity of heart. He's commanding you to work with passion and authenticity, with integrity. And all you do, you work from this place, not just this place. He takes it one deeper in verse 23. Look at what he says. Whatever you do, work heartily. Now that word heartily comes from two Greek words from the soul. Can't get much deeper than that, huh? When you labor in whatever you do, are you working from the soul? Like from the deepest parts of who you are? Or is it just eye service and man pleasing? God cares about your heart, not just your hands. We need to be present in what we do and earnest about what we do and care about what we do. And can I just say this? The world, y'all, the world needs to see us Christians work like this. They need pictures of hardworking people who love Jesus. They need this. They, we should be the people on the employee of the month wall all the time. That would be appropriate. If you're the person who's constantly called into your boss's office, by the way, constantly being slapped on the wrist for things, you are sinning. Your boss probably isn't gonna tell you that, but I'll tell you that. That is sin according to scripture. You phoning it in, you being lazy, you not working hard, dishonors God and breaks the command of scripture. We work hard, not just from our hands, not just when they're looking, not just as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart from our very soul. We work, we work hard. The call for the Christian to work is higher. Do you see how it's higher than we could ever imagine? We obey in everything from our soul. And oh, by the way, this is so serious that in verse 25, Paul says this, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there's no partiality. That's a high call. I, I want you to hear this. One day, every person in this room will stand before God and give an account for how you labored in this life. Wow. That's a high call. And if this feels or seems too impossible to achieve, too high up there, too insurmountable to, to grasp, I want to submit to you, I think it is. I think, it's, I think he's asking too much. I really do. I think it is too much for you and I to do. Think about what it would take for you and I to work like this. Think about the job that you would have to have. Your job would have to be the most fulfilling, satisfying, rich, that job would have to have eternal ramifications. Like it would have to be the most epic thing for you to work at all times from the heart in the minuscule things like that. 
you would have to have an amazing job, right? Uh, Think about what the pay would have to be. You would have, what number would you have to make for you to staple papers just like happy as a lark all day long? What What would that have to be? for you. I mean, it would have to be pretty high for me. I got to say, the pay would have to be astronomical. What, what would your employer need to be like? That, that guy or girl would have to be the most kind, patient, loving, rewarding boss on the entire planet. If only there was some crazy scenario where all those three things became true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's right. There it is. You see, the call of God to work hard can afford to be higher than you could imagine because the motive God gives us to work hard is infinitely deeper than we could imagine. Now, what do I mean? In this new kingdom we're in, before we do even a drop of work, God is, is going to upgrade, if you will, our employer, our job, and our pay. He deepens our motive so that that call to work becomes achievable. Let me show you what I mean in the text. Look at verse 23 again with me. He says this, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as the reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, Paul wants you and I to know you're not working for who you think you're working for. The main reason we can labor as hard as we ought to is because our real boss isn't the one that sits in the corner office. Our real boss, according to the word of God, is the Lord Jesus himself. Wow, right? Do you see the word as there in verse 23? Look at that word as. Do your work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. That word as is an invitation to use your imagination. It's a simile. It's saying, think about this and, and, and think of it like you would think of this. So we're gonna use our imagination for a moment. Use your imagination to see with your mind what you can't see with your eyes. Imagine the, the work you do for your boss or your family or the paper you're writing for your professor, or the hours you're putting into volunteering for that ministry leader. Get that in your head, whatever it is. Now imagine that you're not doing it for them anymore. You're doing it for the Lord of glory himself, Jesus, who loved you and gave himself for you. Do you have that in your head? Do you have that in your heart? Now, go, he's saying, and work like that. How would this transform your ability to work for difficult people? That dude's not my boss. This guy's the worst, but it doesn't matter because my boss is Jesus. I work for him and I so wanna please Jesus so I can put up with this guy because I I work for this guy. I can trust him, he's faithful, he's rewarding, he's a good boss, and I work for Jesus. Think about how this would transform your ability to work just Earth's dullest jobs. Yes, this job is the worst, but Jesus hired me. 
He, I, I don't want to get weird like goofy Christian on you, but it's, it's what he's saying. He hired, I'm here for Jesus' sake. I work for him here. So it transforms everything. Instantly, all our work starts to matter. It's, it all becomes valuable because it's all an offering to Jesus. It all matters from, from being the CEO of the company to being the janitor of the company. If Jesus is your boss, all work in the Christian economy gets elevated. It all matters. Why? Because the Bible's priority isn't on what you do. It's on who you do it for. Let me say that again. The Bible's priority is not on what you do, it's on who you do it for, who you do it for. And Paul says, you do it for the Lord Jesus. I hope this is freeing for someone here. You know what this means? Here, here's an application for you. This means you don't need to find the perfect job. You don't need to find the perfect job. You need to find that every job is a job done for Christ. That's what you need. The priority of the scripture isn't on what you do, but who you do it for. So God upgrades our employer. We work for Jesus Christ now. And therefore, all of our jobs are now flooded with meaning. Do you see that? But he doesn't stop there. He upgrades even our pay, our very reward. It's what the text says. Look at verse 24 with me. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Do you know that one day you will be rewarded for the work that you do on this earth? There is a reward coming from you. There is a reward for you for how you work. And the reward is this phrase, the inheritance. Now, what is the inheritance? Well, Romans chapter 8, 17 tells us that we are heirs, whatever this inheritance is, we're heirs of it, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So God has an inheritance that belongs to his son that we will also share in one day because God has also made us his son. So we now are co-beneficiaries of whatever the inheritance is. Whatever Jesus inherits, we inherit. The question now is, what does Jesus inherit? And the answer is, everything. <laughs> All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Matthew 28. <laughs> You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he has left nothing that is not subject to him. Jesus gets everything. He gets earth, heavens, the cosmos. All of it is his to rule and reign and exercise his authority over forever and ever. And if you are in Christ, you are a co-beneficiary of that, which means you are a co-ruler with the Lord of the universe. What? What does that even mean? I'm not exactly sure, but I know it's what the Bible says. 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. If we've died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Christian, do you understand? You are going to reign? 
you're going to reign with the Lord Jesus Christ? You're not just, I don't know what you think heaven is. Like you're just sitting on a puffy cloud with some little bizarre small wings and like a, a thing and you're playing some Chris Tomlin song perpetually. But it, that's not heaven. You are ruling and reigning as princes and princesses within the kingdom of God exercising dominion over all things like we were, we were created to do in Genesis 1 and 2. What in the world? And Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians, you're gonna judge angels. I don't even know what that means, but it's coming for you. It's gonna be amazing. We get to be co-heirs with Christ, co-regents of the kingdom. What he's saying is this, you are going to be a ruler and a master one day. Can you imagine, just use your imagination, imagine that you work for Apple and Tim Cook, the CEO, comes up to you and he says, uh, I wanna give you a raise. You're like, awesome, uh, thanks. What's the, uh, like a 5% bump? What are we talking about? And he says, no, uh, I'm giving you the company. Uh, we're gonna work together. After you changed your pants, <laughs> my guess is you would probably work hard and you would work happy, wouldn't you? That's how, how can I convince you that what we actually get is 10 trillion times better than that? One day you will co-rule the universe with the Lord of glory for the work that you do today. Do you see what he's doing? Jesus, remember he's talking to slaves at this time, and us as workers and laborers. Jesus motivates slaves to serve their masters by turning slaves into masters. It's beautiful. This is what I meant when I gave my last point of the three points. So we have a higher call, a deeper motive, and a freer outcome. There is a freer outcome, a freer result to this whole thing that God is giving us to do. Why? Because in God's kingdom, every slave becomes a master. And as we're about to see, every master is also a slave. Look with me at uh, verse one of chapter four. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So Paul calls masters to treat their slaves and their servants with justness and equity. Now that's a big enough deal as it is. This wasn't what folks in the first century were going around telling masters in the first place. So this was cutting edge for Paul to say this type of thing to this group of people. Treat them with justness and equity. That's, that's a radical enough. But then he goes on to say, knowing that you also have a master in heaven, which is another way to say, and don't forget, you guys are slaves too. The, do you see what he just did? The whole economy, in just these five or so verses, the whole economy of slavery is now flipped upside down on its head. Do you see that? What is he doing? By giving this command, you know what Paul is doing? To, to slavery, he is draining the institution of its very power. Let, let's go back and, and talk about slavery again one last time. Let's revisit it. First century Roman slavery. This is imperial Rome. 
Do you understand that imperial in Rome, imperial meaning emperor rule. You don't just hop in your buggy and go to the nearest ballot box and vote on Proposition 16 to get rid of slavery. That doesn't exist. Don't, don't project democracy back on imperial Rome and then get mad at Rome for not abolishing it and operating by democratic rules. It didn't work. This is imperial Rome, y'all. This is, this is a place where in the very Roman law code, slaves who rebelled and ran from their masters were to be executed likely by crucifixion. So even if Paul commands, slaves, you're free, go, run, they would be nailed to a wooden cross when they left. This is imperial Rome, where there was actually legislation that prevented masters from manumitting all their slaves. Uh, they couldn't do that. There was a limit on how many slaves could be freed by a given master. So even if the command was masters, free all your slaves, you couldn't legally even do that by Roman law. This is imperial Rome, where Christians were not only a a just minuscule minority of the population, but they were a despised and hated minority by the population. They had no power, no voice. They were gnats in Rome's ear. That's all they were. No one is gonna start a civil war to fix this. That's not going to happen. So how do you bring about change if you can't change it from the outside? Answer, you change it from the inside. That's how, and that's exactly what we see God doing. In just these handful of verses, God is dismantling slavery by ripping its very heart out of its chest. And, and to just drive this home, I want, I want to read you quickly the parallel passage to Colossians. It's very similar. It's in Ephesians chapter 6. You don't have to go there. I'm just going to read it. I want you to listen, though, for just what this might mean for an institution like slavery if this became true for God's people. Listen to it. <clears throat> it's gonna sound very, very similar to Colossians. Bond servants, verse five. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. We've, read, we've heard that before. With a sincere heart, as, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men. You work, you serve your master, slaves. Skip to verse nine. Masters do the same to them. Can I ask you a question? How could slavery possibly exist in anything more than name only if the masters serve the slaves? Answer, it can't. It dissolves. Slavery, slavery is intended to crumble under the weight of a changed heart. And we've watched this play out over history. Every time that you see a country where the gospel of Jesus has taken root, over time, through different means and mechanisms, the institution of slavery has eventually been overturned or undone. It's been gotten rid of. As the gospel makes headway into cultures, it undoes that type of corruption. It can't bear the weight of the implications of the gospel because in the gospel, we learn that all of us were made by God and therefore, by virtue of being made by him, 
him. We belong to him. We are owned by him. He is our master. But in the gospel, we also learn that we rebelled against our master, ran from him, and decided we would be the master. Not you, God. I'm the master. I lead my own course. I drive my own ship. And we did that thinking we were freeing ourselves, but in actuality, we actually just became in bondage to another master, a harder taskmaster named sin. And we, who wanted to be masters ourselves, became slaves of sin. And God, the good master, who, who could have just brought total justice on us instantly, wiped us off the face of the planet, instead of moving away toward us and bringing judgment, he moved toward us by what? becoming a slave himself for us. Jesus Christ, the master, became a slave to rescue slaves from their bondage. When he when he lowered himself to earth as a baby and he took on human flesh and he endured persecution from people and he washed his disciples' feet and he served the poor and he healed the lame and wounded and then he crawled up on a Roman cross and expired. The, the master of the universe became as low as a common slave to purchase us back from slavery. He bought us from our sin taskmasters so that as we cast ourselves on him in faith, we lose our relationship to sin we once had. It is no longer our master, Jesus is. But then he goes a step further. He doesn't just make us slaves again to him, which would be enough. What a treasure to be a bondservant to King Jesus forever. But he says, I'm going one further. I'm making you co-master of everything I own. You are in the house. You're not just a slave, but a son and an heir through God. That is what he's made us. Do you see how that changes everything? All of a sudden, I can lay down my life at work. I can work harder than other people. I cannot get what I want because I know the reward is coming for me. I can be a fair and balanced and just uh, uh, boss or employer. I can do those things because God is everything for me. He is giving me everything. I, I know that one day I will be a bondservant to him and a co-master with him forever and it changes everything. That's the point. That's what should be happening in our hearts. I pray it does. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for giving us the truth of this word. As hard as it is to navigate and uh, as much as it requires a, a lot of um, work to make sense of it, God, the, the truth of it rings true to us. Um, you have called us to labor hard and long and with a full heart because you have given us everything that would be required to do that. And God, we just wanna confess that we don't work like we ought. We live in this world believing things in our mind that we don't operate in with our lives. And God, we're sorry for that. I'm sorry for that, God. 
for all the ways we have phoned in the tasks and the work that you've given us to do, for all the ways that we have been people pleasers instead of God pleasers, for all the ways that we've worked for eye service of men instead of working for the Lord Jesus, God, we're sorry for that. We repent of that. It doesn't honor you. And God, we're praying that you would change us and help us to to grow into the image of Jesus, that we could lay down our lives working hard for the cause because we know that you have become our master, our boss, and you are giving us everything in the end. Lord, thank you for those promises. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.